That's always cool to do. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome, everyone. And welcome to Cuyahoga County's Public Library's beautiful Snow Road Branch. We are privileged to partner with the City Club of Cleveland on this special event. In Parma, we have two outstanding library branches, the main branch and this one, which also houses their executive offices. I want to thank Executive Director Siri Feldman for giving me this opportunity to introduce tonight's featured author, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, also known as Mayor Pete. My name is Tim DeGeter, and I'm the mayor of Parma, the seventh largest city in Ohio. I grew up in Mishawaka, which is just next door to South Bend. In fact, my family actually lives in South Bend now. My Aunt Rita and my dad were originally going to uh, drive here to listen to their next favorite mayor. <laughs> you like that one. But they decided not to make the trip because of bad weather. But they both say hello. My wife and I and our children often travel to South Bend so the kids can spend time with their papa. And over the years, I've observed firsthand that city's transformation. Today, the downtown is thriving. The streets and sidewalks look new. More businesses and people are moving into the community. As a result, the mindset among the locals has changed to a more positive outlook. Seven years ago, South Bend landed on a top 10 list no mayor wants to be a part of. Newsweek's top 10 list of dying American communities. Since then, Mayor Pete has moved South Bend forward, overcoming the stigma of the Studer-Baker plant closing and the image of a city in decline. South Bend has witnessed its fastest pace of population and investment growth in recent memory. The first time I met Mayor Pete was not in South Bend. We both uh, were in 2011 at a U.S. conference of new mayors in Boston as we both took office in 2012. Mayor Pete was born in South Bend and attended St. Joe's High School, also where my dad went. A Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, Mayor Pete holds a bachelor's degree from Harvard University. He was elected at age 29. During his first term, he introduced the Thousand Homes in a Thousand Days initiative, which demolished or repaired abandoned homes throughout the city. In his second term, he constructed a safer, more appealing street smarts in the downtown area. He also announced the largest investments for parks and trails in city's history. An officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve from 2009 to 2017, he took a leave of absence to serve in Afghanistan during a seven-month deployment in 2014. He later received the Joint Service Commendation Medal for his counterterrorism work. He now lives in the neighborhood where he grew up, where he is also restoring a former vacant home. His book, Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future, tells of his personal triumphs in the transformation of South Bend. The Washington Post called Mayor Pete the most interesting mayor you've never heard of. Unfortunately for South Bend and for my dad and my aunt, he won't be seeking a third term as mayor but I'll allow you to have him explain why. Let's give a please, great welcome, Ohio welcome to Mayor Pete. Thank you. Well, thank you. First of all, uh, Mayor DeGater, thanks for the kind introduction. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's uh, great to be reunited uh, with a classmate from rookie school uh, uh, back when we got started. And of course, uh, I take great pleasure in, in claiming him, even though he belongs uh, now to this community uh, as somebody who uh, was educated within walking distance of my house and, and grew up uh, and still has family in our region. So thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm aware that I am part of a, a great tradition uh, of speakers going back more than 100 years, and I hope I will uh, do my best to, uh, uh, to live up to that. And I also want to congratulate the Cuyahoga uh, uh, County Public Library on uh, the terrific uh, setup that you have here and the network that you have. Libraries are so important. I think every mayor uh, knows their value. Uh, Cuyahoga. I'm also looking forward 
to, by the end of the night, with your help settling once and for all whether the local pronunciation of the name of your county contains two syllables or one syllable. I, I still haven't quite figured it out. Um, I feel a lot of kinship with, uh, with this community and with all the, not only because, you know, basically what you do is you get on I-80 uh, and uh, you, you make a right turn, you drive uh, four or five hours, you make two more right turns and you're at our house. Um, uh, so we're pretty much a straight shot. Um, but also because our communities have been through, I think, very similar stories. Uh, and if there is a central argument to, to my book, Shortest Way Home, uh, the argument is that uh, we are being misread as a region, um, especially uh, we've been misread by people in my party uh, and by people in the other party who have suggested that the only formula for the industrial Midwest is one of nostalgia and resentment, uh, when in fact we are uh, a, a region full of communities uh, that are hopeful, that are innovative, that are imaginative, and that understand how the past the present and the future can relate. Um, so with that, um, this is actually the official day of publication of the book, which means, um, thank you. And so I'm in, in something of an unfamiliar environment. I'm not unaccustomed to speaking to uh, a sizable audience, but I am uh, uh, unaccustomed to doing so about my book. I, I thought probably the best thing I could do uh, is just read a few uh, parts from it. I'll do my best to keep it lively. And then uh, once I've done enough of that that you have a sense of both of my story and my city's story uh, and of uh, what, uh, uh, what we're trying to convey in the book, uh, then we'll just uh, uh, turn it over and, and talk about whatever you find to be interesting. So I hope, I hope that works for you. Um, I promise not to read it from the very beginning, but I did want to start with the uh, the first epigram, because I think it says a lot, it's from, uh, it's by an author named Michael Collins from a novel called The Keepers of Truth, which is set in a fictional city that's more or less South Bend. Uh, and he's in the sort of opening monologue of that book, which I borrowed to put on the uh, front page of the first section. He says, factories were our cathedrals pushed up out of the Great Plains. And I think a lot of us would recognize that in our communities. Um, Part of the premise of me getting into the 2020 conversation is generational. It's the idea that the time has come for a new generation to add its voice to the national conversation. And so I, I uh, thank you. <laughs> so I thought I'd share a bit just from, from the first chapter about uh, uh, what I think it means to be from the generation that I'm from. Uh, I make it by about a three week margin, I make it into the millennial generation. To be born in 1982 is to be just old enough to remember the Soviet Union and to have its fall be the first seismic geopolitical event of your lifetime. I remember the kid who dominated second grade show and tell with a little chunk of the Berlin Wall, gray and rough on one side, but smooth and painted on the other, a trophy from his father's business trip to Europe. And there was Miss Martin repeatedly explaining to us why our maps and globes with union of Soviet socialist republics spread in impossibly stretched letters across the Siberian tundra, were now obsolete. Coming into the world in the early 1980s puts you in that senior segment of the millennial generation that still remembers life before the smartphone. Today, I couldn't tell you the number of the phone on my own desk, but I still know my friend Joe's number from sixth grade because I would punch it in daily after school on a phone we had not yet learned to call a landline. If I dial that number, even today, one of his parents will still pick up. I'm young enough that I don't always use a TV set to watch television, but old enough that you might catch me using the phrase flat screen TV, as if they sell any other kind. <laughs> Only now can I make sense of the way my grandparents' generation used to talk of color TV, long past the time when you could find a black and white TV for sale anywhere in America. From my freshman dorm room in late 2000, the most high-tech thing I did every morning was log on to southbendswndu.com and look at the two-inch square, low-resolution still image from the webcam on their transmission tower aimed at the Golden Dome, updated every few minutes, a grainy but comforting link to home. Websites didn't have much to them back then. I can see myself telling my grandchildren one day. But things moved quickly. By senior year, as I was banging out my thesis on an early model iBook, a few sophomores in another dorm were creating a website patterned after the 
face books that Harvard passed out at the beginning of the year so that we could figure out who was who in the dining hall. Being in your 30s today means that you have lived more or less half and half with Democratic and Republican presidencies, known 20 years of peace and 15 of war. It means you were grazing the boundaries of adulthood when we all experienced the sudden reversal of what some fashionable scholars had taken to calling the end of history after the close of the Cold War. That shock came my sophomore year, a crisp September day in Boston, as it was in Manhattan, when history thundered back into being. It wasn't hard to tell by sundown that everything would be different, that irony and apathy wouldn't dominate our years after all, that our generation would go to war just as our parents had. History was back. And in hindsight, it's obvious that we had actually never been living outside its rhythm. But in the horror of that sunny Tuesday, all we could make out was the onset of a major shift. I remember thinking that suddenly our generation's project had been abruptly reassigned, that yesterday we had been absorbed in Clinton-era concerns around globalization, the distribution of wealth, and the consequences of technology. But now we were being plunged into a different realm, dominated by things like warfare and terrorism. Today, it has come full circle. We see how often war and terrorism are driven by the dynamics of globalization, the distribution of wealth, and the consequences of technology. Like laws of physics, these forces were animating our affairs all along, which should have been no surprise to people from a place like South Bend, a city wrestling with such forces long before economists and newspapers gave us terms like globalization and rust belt. What follows is a description of South Bend, my experience growing up there. Um, and uh, to make a few long stories short, I left. I grew up believing that success had to do with getting out of your hometown, uh, as a lot of people I think here maybe come up believing. And uh, I, I got myself into Harvard, um, then went overseas on, on a, that Rhodes Scholarship. And the further away I got from home, the more I began to realize I was from somewhere when I was uh, noticing the funny look people would give me in a place like Boston when I said hello to them, I began to realize that Midwestern culture actually amounted to something and that I was the product of a culture. Um, I got a job at McKinsey, a consulting company. I liked the job, I learned a lot, um, but I realized fairly quickly that uh, client service uh, probably was not for me in the long run. And around that time I found myself uh, drawn into the story of the rescue of Chrysler. It was a political controversy. And my own state treasurer in Indiana uh, fought the rescue of Chrysler. He actually sued, he got all the way to the Supreme Court. If he'd won, uh, Chrysler would have been liquidated and I believe that Indiana would have been devastated. Um, so I decided to run against him. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and it turns out there were some reasons why more experienced and established politicians were passing up the chance to run statewide as Democrat in 2010 <laughs> for an office nobody had ever heard of. But I didn't know that, uh, or if I knew that, I, I didn't much mind. Uh, and so I write about how I got into that race and what I was doing um, and what it was like campaigning statewide for, for somebody who had uh, never run for office before, and I wanted to share just a little bit of that experience. Compared to fundraising, retail politics was a simple pleasure. Indiana has 92 counties and we visited nearly all of them. A typical Saturday that summer would involve three or so parades, perhaps a county fair or two mixed in, and one or more appearances at a Jefferson Jackson dinner, each event usually at least an hour's drive from the next. These Jefferson Jackson dinners, or JJs, were the central ritual of campaigning within the party. A decade later, Democratic organizations would reconsider naming their annual events after these two morally problematic men, but that trend is only now penetrating throughout Indiana. Jeff, that's my campaign manager, uh, and pretty much everything else on the campaign. Jeff and I would appear at the Elks Lodge, Legion Hall, Community Center, or in the very biggest counties, a hotel ballroom. If I was lucky, a county chair would recognize me and show me in, but usually I started at the check-in table where a volunteer asked my name and then furrowed her eyebrows, studying a printed list as she tried to figure out how to spell my name without asking me again to say it. <laughs> I'd buy a few tear-off tickets for the 50-50 raffle, go into the hall with the tables, and introduce myself to every single person. The faces would be skeptical, but polite, and eventually we would all settle in over chicken and beans as the program began the pledge, the prayer, and the speeches. 
The custom of working your way up to the most distinguished speaker is often reversed at a rural JJ dinner. If a congressman was present, he would usually go first, so he could leave for another event. The down-ticket statewide races typically came late in the program, somewhere after the state representatives and before the auction. I could write a book just about the food we ate. A street fair comes to mind one summer night in Evansville, a city about the size of South Bend, but on the opposite end of the state, across the river from Kentucky. At the unforgettable West Side Nut Club Festival, I was met with a mostly delicious raise of, raise, range of offerings that amounted to a cardiological nightmare. <laughs> that night in my journal, I copied just a portion of the C section of a two-page guide in six-point font that spelled out alphabetically all the sins available by booth. Caramel puffs, catfish fillet sandwich, catfish nuggets, chai tea, cheese balls, cheese soup, cheese sticks, cheese quesadillas, cheese burgers, about a dozen booths lifted for that one, uh, cheesecake, cheesecake on a stick, cheesy fries, and so on. Walking among the booths, I don't remember seeing any chai tea, but there was certainly an abundance of cheese. I somehow avoided the featured delicacy that year, deep-fried turkey testicles, as well as the festival's well-known tradition of brain sandwiches. But you have to eat something. And I ended up sampling candied jalapenos, of which the guy from the church selling them said, all I can tell you is they've been in this here jar since the last festival. <laughs> and something called pig in the mud, which is a sort of peanut butter and bacon sandwich covered in powdered sugar. That summer, I played a small part in setting a world record, most fried chicken ever prepared in a single serving. A little geographic background is in order, and I'm curious if this applies in Ohio, too. There is an invisible line that goes on a northeasterly slant across the northern third of our state. North of it, the preferred fair food is pork burgers. South, it's chicken. Cross another line into the southern third of the state, and the fair is typically schnitzel, only you call it pork tenderloin. If you're going to use ethnic meat names, you'd better know what you're doing. Once in South Bend, I saw a visiting politician from a German-settled downstate city take the mic at a sausage-intensive Polish festival and make the mistake of praising the bratwurst instead of the kielbasa. <laughs> and the air went out of the room for a minute. <laughs> I'll spare you the deeper nuances of the fair food geography. The important thing is that Franklin County is in chicken territory, and the people there had been looking for a way to make the canoe festival more exciting that year. So they decided to get their community into the record books, by filling a canoe with the most chicken ever placed into a single container. The previous world record was held by some KFC distributor in the Persian Gulf who had put 1,200 pounds of chicken on a giant hummus plate a few years earlier. In the glint of the evening summer sun, we gathered near the county seat, Brookville, population 2,596. The atmosphere was somewhere between jolly and crazed. I met a Colonel Sanders impersonator who pointed out that the Colonel had actually been born in Indiana, not Kentucky. Signs saying things like, make chicken, not war, and beat Kuwait, ringed the canoe while people streamed in from every corner of town bearing styrofoam coolers full of fried chicken from restaurants and family chickens, family kitchens. <laughs> the family chickens were in the coolers. Eager to please, I tried to make myself useful by carrying a few coolers from a staging area to the boat where the chicken was promptly dumped in. When the president of the Canoe Fest Friars Club announced the official weight of the chicken, 1,645 pounds, the applause heralded an authentically achieved moment in the life of the community. Then, of course, we ate it all. Um, I didn't win. I didn't become Indiana State Treasurer. Matter of fact, I got clobbered. Uh, it was about 60-40. I can claim to be the top vote-getter uh, only because my uh, running mates for uh, Secretary of State and State Auditor uh, had libertarian candidates, so uh, I did just slightly better than they did um, in total terms. But I learned a lot. I'm glad I did it. And I probably wouldn't have guessed that I would wind up running for mayor, except that, that there was that article that, that the mayor mentioned, the Dying Cities article, and a few other things going on in the community that motivated me to run. Um, let me just read you two paragraphs about what happened when, we, when that article came. Ten weeks after my statewide political defeat, on January 21st, 2011, Newsweek ran a story called America's Dying Cities. The authors analyzed demographic data, especially declines in the population of young people, 
to arrive at the conclusion that 10 communities in particular epitomized urban decay and were on their way out. Most were in the Midwest. South Bend was number eight. The short commentary concluded with this. What is particularly troubling for this small city is that the number of young people declined by 2.5% during the previous decade, further casting doubt on whether this city will ever be able to recover. I had just turned 29. South Bend reacted intensely. A Facebook thread from the time captured the range of opinion. Doesn't surprise me a bit, one resident said, summing up general pessimism among many who had seen employers, jobs, and stores disappear. The demographic, the workforce, even the economy is all going downhill, said another. But in the comments and coverage of the time, you could also see the stirrings of a resistance to the doom and gloom narrative, especially among young people. On that same thread, a classmate of mine commented, if you live here, quit complaining and do something to fix this town. So that's what we did. We ran for mayor and uh, again, to make a long story that you can read at your leisure in the book a little bit shorter, uh, we uh, entered a five-way race and in the end won with 55% uh, of the vote in the primary and uh, about 75% uh, in, uh, in the general election. And then came the hard part, which had to do with running the city. Um, I felt confident in my understanding of policy and management, um, sometimes perhaps too confident, but I assembled a fantastic team, we worked together, we delivered results, and uh, really changed the trajectory of our neighborhoods, of the city itself, the way the technology was used to benefit citizens. Um, there's another part of the job that I wasn't as comfortable with, though, um, and that was the symbolic side. Um, so I wanted to share a little bit about how I grew into that because um, I wouldn't have known that that was such an important part of the job uh, until I learned a couple of things the hard way. Civic ceremony, to put it mildly, was not my forte at first. Shaped by my consulting background, I arrived in office wanting to get concrete, measurable things done. My intentions focused on erasing inefficiencies and producing results. I took the office eager to redesign the organization of local government and guide the course of our local economy, to see collapsing houses removed and urban infill built. The more concrete and countable my work product, the better. As for what you might call the symbolic functions of a mayor, sitting on a dais at a charity lunch or standing smiling next to a congressman or governor amid an en endless sequence of speeches prior to a ribbon cutting, to me this was a cost of doing business, an irritation to be dealt with as quickly as possible so I could get back to work. A college classmate elected to local office in another state once surprised me with the comment, sometimes I wish we still had a royal family in America. I asked what he was talking about and he explained, it would be nice if a royal family were available to handle things like cutting ribbons and waving to people in parades so that elected policymakers like us could focus on the real work of legislation and administration. And I thought of him often while standing alongside other officials at some event where I had no substantive role but to be present and imagined what it would be like to just outsource that part of the job to some municipal prince or princess or perhaps a lord mayor in the English tradition so I could stay at the office and work on a way to improve trash pickup or eliminate some duplicative paperwork from our tax abatement applications. It seemed like standing there, blinking in my suit. I'm sorry, I lost my spot. It seemed like standing there, blinking in my suit, which required no real skill or intention, was a waste of time. Plus, the mental picture of a local official consumed with photo ops evoked the image of mayoring that I liked least, that cartoon concept of the sash-wearing, cigar-chomping, petty official with a puffed-out chest like Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. By the time I stood at an outdoor podium one warm May evening in 2015 and raised a glass to the city of South Bend in honor of her 150th birthday, I had gone through a full transformation in my regard for ceremony. By then, my old attitude seemed narrow. Growing into the job of mayor entailed grasping that the symbolic role given to me was no less substantive than the power of policy, if deployed wisely. It was a gradual conversion that began, like most important growth, in, in a moment of pain, the aftermath of a murder. Not to leave you too much of a cliffhanger, but it would take too long for me to tell you that story, so you, you'll have to consult the book for that. Um, the point is I, I grew into different parts of the job. 
the tactical, the functional, the administrative, the measurable, the metrical, um, but also the symbolic, the ceremonial, and the moral. And I think this is relevant, especially now as we enter in a conversation about what any executive office, including uh, the highest, is really about. And I think it has a lot to do with calling people to their highest values, with uh, moral leadership that brings out the best in us. Uh, and I think that really does depend on uh, very much on uh, who our leaders are and how they go about their business. And by the way, I think the conduct of a campaign, win or lose, plays a big role in that too. Um, let me just read you one paragraph about Mike Pence because, um, because a lot of people want to know what I think about Mike Pence. There's a whole chapter on that. Uh, I'll just read you the last, the last paragraph. Let's just say the relationship had its ups and downs. What I'm writing about is the end game of the so-called Religious Freedom Restoration Act controversy, which briefly marked our state as uh, the most anti-gay in the union, but which also saw a coalition of Democratic and Republican mayors, as well as business leaders, rise up, push back, and compel the state government to back down. The fix, this is what they did to unwind that law, the fix was not exactly a leap forward in LGBT inclusion. An effort failed the next year to actually establish a civil rights policy, which meant going forward that in many parts of Indiana, people could still be fired for being gay. Embarrassingly, we also remained one of just five American states with no ban on hate crimes. But the whole episode showed that trying to appeal to radical social conservatives no longer worked in Indiana, because it would run afoul of what most people believed, including typically conservative groups like the business community. The controversy crippled Pence's reputation as governor and created an opening for his Democratic challenger, John Gregg, to mount a credible campaign against him for the governor's office in 2016. What no one could have known then was the future benefit to Pence of establishing himself as a hero to the religious far right, a political martyr almost. It made him into a brilliant, if cynical, choice of running mate for Donald Trump. Nominating an evangelical heartland governor was the best way for a thrice-married, formerly pro-choice, philandering ex-Democrat like Trump to reach out to religious conservatives and begin unifying the fractured right around his candidacy. And while Trump's life story was anathema to everything Mike Pence believed in, this was the right move for Pence, too, if viewed in the cynical light of raw politics. The governor had lost respect on both sides of the aisle in his home state and was now widely expected to lose his reelection. Strange bedfellows though they were, Mike Pence and Donald Trump needed each other. Win or lose, teaming up with Trump could give Pence a second political life. I'll read you just two or three more sections because I want to make sure we have ample time for Q&A. Um, there's a lot of talk about Afghanistan right now, um, about how we can bring an end to endless war. And one of the things I wrote about was my struggle over trying to figure out how wars end, what it means for a war to end. And I'll read you a bit about how I thought about that even while I was deployed. The rhythm of deployed life brought busy days and slow ones. Even with the extra time I spent keeping up with the home front, carrying a laptop and a cigar up to the roof at midnight to pick up a Wi-Fi signal and patch via Skype into a staff meeting at home, there was more time for reflection and reading than I was used to back home. For every day punctuated by a rocket attack or an explosion, there were five dominated by meetings, emails, and workouts. Between calls home, convoys, and meals, I sat at the computer in my tuna can. That's what we called our, uh, our little con modified containers that we lived and worked in. I sat at the computer in my tuna can and looked up the history of wars beginning and ending. I read about how World War I ended at 11 in the morning on November 11th, 1918. The armistice was signed at 5 in the morning, but set to take effect at 11. In those six hours, there were thousands of casualties. An American soldier was killed at 10.59 after he decided to use the last 60 seconds of the war to charge a German position. If the armistice had been agreed on the 10th of November or the 12th, would anyone have bothered to set a time instead of letting it take immediate effect? Did the negotiators place any weight on the loss of life required for their tidy numerology? 
By August, as my unit's only remaining officer at the thinning ISAF headquarters in Kabul, I was told in no certain uncertain terms that my mission now had less to do with running our little station there than shutting it down. The gunny sergeant, my right-hand man, went home to rejoin his wife and four boys in South Carolina, leaving me with one analyst. In the fluorescent-lit chow hall with officers from another unit, I would end meals by rising from the table with mock self-importance, saying, well, time to go check on my troops. This was the cue for one of the others to ritually supply the punchline to that joke. You mean your troop. <laughs> but the mission, which had to do with blocking the flow of narcotics funding to the insurgency, still mattered. So even as I worked to dismantle our shop, I got busy looking for people to take up pieces of ongoing work that we could hand off. A British law enforcement partner who might still be there in a year working out of the UK embassy. A State Department civilian whose head didn't count against the 9800. Some special units with a mission to stay throughout the retrograde. Or one of the Afghan officials I had met who were going to wind up owning these problems anyway. Letting go of the mission did not come easily, but clinging to it raised other concerns. What if I was doing something wrong by pushing too hard? risking my life and others to keep going outside the confines of the base in order to see the mission through while being told on, from on high to wrap it up. I owed it to anyone who got into a vehicle with me and their spouses to make sure we weren't taking any unjustified risks. In my eagerness to finish strong, how could I be sure I wasn't entering the grim tradition of officers, like the ones who had ordered those deadly advances that November morning in 1918 in order to get a few more inches of turf by 11, who didn't recognize when their job was done? their war over. This book is a love letter to the city of South Bend. It, it also has a lot to do with uh, the love that I found for uh, my husband, Chaston, uh, who, whom I met shortly after returning home from that deployment. Um, coming out of the closet was a complicated process, especially as a sitting mayor in Indiana uh, with a re-election going on while Mike Pence was governor. Um, <laughs> But I, f I figured it out. Um, one of the things I write about is as challenging as that was, that actually wasn't the hardest part. Um, the reason I came out was that I wanted to have a personal life. And once I had taken a deep breath and swallowed hard and figured out how to come out to my community, my family and then my community, uh, then I had to figure out what to do. So I wrote about that a little bit. I had come out of the closet in order to make it possible, at last, to create a meaningful personal life. I was already well into my 30s and hoping to have a family someday. The politics were what they were. Now that I didn't have to worry about being spotted or outed, it was time to start dating. But how? How is a gay mayor, or any mayor, supposed to go about getting a date? The closer to home I looked, the harder it seemed. It could be an ethical minefield. A mayor in his own city can certainly get his calls returned. But there's also the risk that someone will completely misunderstand why you're inviting them to meet for a coffee at Chicory Cafe or a pint at Fiddler's Hearth. Farther afield, friends from college were willing and eager to introduce me to people they knew. But most of the eligible guys in question lived in New York or Washington. To most of them, I was lost in the expanse of flyover country, probably even more remote than if I were overseas. Since I wasn't moving anytime soon, I was going to have to think closer to home. But when it came to South Bend, it wasn't even clear where to look. I thought of the countless local doctors and business leaders of my parents' generation who had seemed intent over the years on fixing me up with their bright and lovely daughters. Where were these would-be matchmakers now? <laughs> and how was it that not one of them had a son or nephew that they wanted me to meet? My city had never felt so small. In the military, sometimes they talk about training age to describe the difference between longevity and experience. For example, if you were a 40-year-old major trained in field artillery and then switched to intelligence, you might have the same training age as a private first class 20 years your junior when it came to a specific skill like cryptography. That's how I felt about dating and romance. I was in my 30s, but my training age, so to speak, was practically zero. On my 33rd birthday, I was starting my fourth year as the mayor of a sizable city. I had served in a foreign war and dined with senators and governors. I had seen Red Square and the Great Pyramids of Giza, knew how to order a sandwich in seven languages, and was the owner of a large historic home on the St. Joseph River. But I had absolutely no idea what it was like to be in love. 
Again, a story you'll have to read about in the book if you're interested. <laughs> I fell in love. And then I got married. And uh, by the way, the book is the main part of how we're paying the bills for the wedding. So um, <laughs> feel free to buy an extra one for a friend. Um, we're pressing up against time, so I'll just read you one last passage from the, from the final um, uh, chapter of the book, because again, I think it might resonate with some communities out here. True hope for our city never lay in returning to some nostalgic prior state, some literal or figurative return of Studebaker. Rather, the first vision of the resurgent South Bend in which we now live was expressed all the way back in that bleak December of 1963 when the store owner, Paul Gilbert, defiantly told the assembly of alarmed fellow city leaders, this is not Studebaker, Indiana, this is South Bend, Indiana. At the time, it might have sounded like wishful thinking. No doubt many in his audience, knowing how dependent our city was on that industry, exchanged skeptical glances at one another, supposing that he was in denial. But the real denial, and the more costly, was to persist in believing that South Bend could only thrive as an old-school automaking company town dependent on a single massive employer. Progress could begin only once the loss had been fully metabolized. Nothing is more human than to resist loss, which is why cynical politicians can get pretty far by offering up the fantasy that a loss can be reversed rather than overcome the hard way. This is the deepest lie of our recent national politics, the core falsehood encoded in Make America Great Again. Beneath the impossible promises, that coal alone will fuel our future, that a big wall can be built around our status quo, that climate change isn't even real, is the deeper fantasy that time itself can be reversed, all losses restored, and thus no new ways of life required. To defeat this temptation is to see what actually lies on the other side of acceptance, not diminished expectations, but still greater ones. For us, paradoxically, the only way to relive anything like our hometown's former greatness is to stop trying to retrieve it from our vanished past. If manufacturing is to grow around here now, its growth will not come by reverting to a world of cut-off routes and pre-computer production methods. The founders of car manufacturing here would scarcely recognize this industry as their own, but it echoes their originality and audacity, showing that the less we concentrate on emulating their forebears, our forebears, the more we begin to resemble them at their best. So there's a few thoughts from the book. Again, eager to thank you. <laughs> eager to respond to any ideas or questions until somebody, I assume, rings the bell and that, or does whatever it does to tell me that, uh, that it's time to step aside. And I think there are microphones uh, roving or up here in the front. There's a, there's a mic too. So we're actually going to start with a question from Twitter. Huh. Um, I know it's much smaller than your overall campaign, but as a GIS analyst in local government, I'm curious what role the technology played in South Bend's transformation and what role you see it playing from a big picture perspective. I love it. That's such a great city government. I promise not to geek out too much, right, Mayor? We could, we could go on about this a lot. But, uh, and there's a whole chapter that meditates on this too. Uh, we try to make sure that we were... I guess the key to it is making sure we're not using data for its own sake, but using data to make uh, our job of delivering services for residents better. Uh, data can cut both ways. It, it can actually take on a life of its own, and uh, it, you can become so absorbed in it that you forget the why, uh, why it's worth making these operations more efficient. Um, sometimes we gathered so much data that we didn't know what to do with it. Other times we would gather data but not be willing to follow it to its logical conclusion, especially if that meant maybe reducing a city operation and laying off city employees. So another question, a moral question, is are you ready to follow uh, these data to their conclusion? But used right, used, used in, in, in the right way. Um, using uh, information to make us better at our job in any government effort, whether it be local or federal, I think is a, a big part of how we can get the productivity gains in government to serve people better uh, with less pressure on the taxpayer. Yes, as a mayor, uh, do you have a hard time cooperating uh, with the current administration on the immigration policies they passed down? Yeah, another thing that, that I discussed a little bit in the book was that we had moments of um, 
challenge and, and even outright panic when there were rumors of raids going on in the west side of our city, a, a west side that was built by Polish and, and Hungarian immigrants, uh, then almost emptied out. And it is now being rebuilt again by immigrants from uh, mostly Latin America. So you had the same thing we had 100 years ago, large Catholic immigrant working families rebuilding our neighborhoods. Only now they're speaking Spanish instead of Polish. Um, there is no question that the job of any mayor is being made harder, not only by the present administration and the climate of fear, um, but also by the failure of Washington since the last serious effort, which I think was in 2006, to pass comprehe comprehensive immigration reform. And if we can get that done, it'll be a lot easier for any city to go about its business. Hello, Mayor. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for coming to Cleveland. Loved what you read. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering from your point of view how you see this Democratic primary shaken down. Hmm. I mean, we've got Kamala and Amy and L Elizabeth and Kirsten and Corey and Sherrod and I mean, I could go on and on, right? So, and Julio. You've so, got one. And you, and you, and you. Okay. <laughs> but. Just teasing. I was just wondering if you could help us see how you see this playing out. Yeah. Well, what, one of the things that's so interesting about it is it's not uh, any of the dynamics we had before, right? Whether it's a David and Goliath dynamic, which is common, you have one big kind of juggernaut and that's the program and then you define yourself by either being on board or being in opposition. We don't have that. Uh, we don't have the sort of uh, three-way pattern that 2008 looked like for a while. There's kind of three lanes and you decide what lane you want to get in. Uh, I know that I have the Maltese-American gay millennial war veteran mayor lane all to myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, but even there, right? I mean, the senator lane is crowded. The mayor, I might not be the only mayor if I get in to, to, to be in the picture. Uh, uh, there's uh, different generational candidates. There's a left lane that, that's got a lot of folks in it. Um, I think that's fine. Actually, I think it's healthy because we're at this moment that I think is more than just an election. It's a realignment in American politics. And um, one way to look at it is, you know, after 2004, after that defeat, I think it really shocked Democrats into thinking a little harder about who we wanted to be. And a lot of things emerged that, that were really beneficial. Different groups came together, there's a lot of activism, there's a lot of energy, new candidates and figures emerged. So I figure if 2016 was way worse for our party than 2004, maybe its aftermath will also be more fertile. And I think we saw that in 2018 with these extraordinary, uh, largely young, mostly women, uh, remarkable figures getting elected to Congress. Um, so even though it, it may be six or nine or 12 months before this even resolves itself into lanes, and that makes it hard to make sense of the field, I also think the, the diversity of it and the breadth of it is uh, not only selfishly uh, pretty favorable for newcomers and underdogs, um, but also just generally a healthy thing to allow our party to really decide where it wants to go. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. So, uh, Mayor Pete, thank you for coming out as a fellow South Bend native and fellow graduate of Stanley Clark and oh, St. Awesome. Joe High. I'm right. very excited to, to have you here. So, um, All roads lead to South Bend. Exactly, right. Awesome. So, and my, my uncle and grandfather both spoke very highly of your late father on the faculty at Notre okay. Dame, so thank I'm you. grateful for his memory. So, thank you. Um, I teach at a Catholic high school, and so I'm just curious where, in your experience, um, you know, in South Bend or where you see it playing out on the national scale, um, collaboration and cooperation between uh, different faith traditions, organizations, um, how we can kind of recover that collaboration because I know it can be very divisive, you know, where has your kind of experience been in, you know, seeing that as a place to unify rather yeah. than to divide? It's a great, it's a great thing to think about. And, and you know, I, I'm, um, I'm a product of Catholic education. My, my high school uh, experience at St. Joseph's High School is a big part of who I am. Um, even though I'm not Catholic, I'm Episcopalian. Um, and I think a couple of things are important. One, as our economy changes, especially with automation, I actually don't believe it's the end of manufacturing by any stretch, but what it might be the end of is most people having a single relationship with a single employer that helps explain where you fit in the world. So a job not only is income, um, but is a kind of way to answer kind of who you are. Uh, our generation is likely to change professions more often than our parents change jobs. What does this have to do with faith? Well, there's a void that happens if you lose the ability to point to your place in, in, in a workplace as a, a source of community and identity and purpose, not just a source of income. 
And I think that void helps to explain some of the uh, some of the causes of a number of symptoms from uh, the rise in deaths from despair and the opioid ep epidemic to some of the turmoil in U.S. politics right now. And while there are some very unhealthy answers to, to how to fill that void, there are some very promising ones too. I believe community itself is one, and I believe mayors and cities are part of the answer. I believe family is one, uh, because your role in a family can be part of how you explain your role in the greater world. And I believe faith is potentially a very big part of that too. I would also, as a Democrat, note that um, this is a moment that really calls for a resurgence, I think, of the religious left. Uh, I think we've gone for too long with faith as an idea monopolized by one side. Um, it's true in my own experience. We were married at my church, and uh, um, not to too put too fine a point on it, but my marriage, which happens to be a gay marriage, in my view, has made moved me closer to God. Um, and so uh, we have to find faith as a basis for common ground, not for division. Obviously, faith has great power to be both of those things. And I'm a civic figure, not a religious one, so I try to show a lot of respect for the, di the distinctions there. Um, but if not now, when? Uh, especially because the scripture I read has an awful lot to do with taking care of uh, the poor, the prisoner, and the immigrant. Thank you. Okay, so after Nixon resigned and Ford gave him this gigantic pardon, it was everything that he did wrong was effectively swept under the rug, ostensibly so the country could heal. Assuming you win, which would be great, how do you feel about a comprehensive Truth and Reconciliation Commission so that we get all hmm. the information about everything that's going on and flesh out all the bad things and all the bad people who are trying to ruin our country? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I think you've hit on something profound, something that's not complete. I got a question in Iowa that really threw me. I didn't see it coming, which is about uh, uh, the role of grace and forgiveness uh, in politics right now. Uh, so it kind of ties back to the question about faith, too. Um, and I think there's something to this idea, actually, of, of truth and reconciliation. Um, the problem is how do we do it in a way that doesn't position, well, someone like me as kind of passing on ju judgment on other people. Um, we've got to find a way to, look, m my, my theory of the case is there are a lot of people who made a decision to vote for the current president uh, with no illusions about what kind of guy he was, but effectively voting to burn the house down because the system had led us down in so many different ways. And in a certain way, part of that, even though I, I would never have followed it to that conclusion, in a certain way, that's not wrong. And so if we want to be one country and bring people back into the fold, look, so much of politics has to do with how people view themselves. And we've got to find a way to invite people who, uh, who supported a, a situation that I now think is horrible for the country to, to be on a similar side as us without you know, informing them that they were part of a crime, <laughs> which is not a great way to win people over. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the way I feel it is like, you, I, I guess my moral understanding of the world is that there aren't good, good people and bad people. We do good and bad things. And we have good and bad things within us aroused by leaders. And the real problem with leadership today is it arouses often what is worst in us. By the way, it can arouse what is worst in us among the opponents as well as among the supporters of this president. So I don't know how you structure it, but I do think some kind of national healing process is going to be really important for us to move past this era, which will sooner or later come to a close. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for coming and sharing your story. So Cleveland is a great town. It's got a lot of assets and history, and it also has some problems, like a fairly high poverty rate. Um, so your story is you came into a town that was dying and, and turned it around. So what is the one best thing that you think that you did to um, help get South Bend to some kind of tipping point of, of going in a positive direction? Yeah. Well, first of all, in the spirit of honesty, let me make clear how far South Bend has to go. Uh, mm -hmm. More than a quarter of our residents still live in poverty, and the poverty line federally is a pretty conservative way of gauging poverty. Um, we are celebrating the fact that our per capita personal income just moved over $20,000. So we've got a long way to go. 
And by the way, within that, there's a lot of racial inequality. So uh, I'm proud of what South Bend's achieved. I don't want to seem like I strode in here and said that this you know, young, dynamic, good-looking mayor turned it from uh, you know, all problems to fantastic. But, but we're doing better. Um, part of it had to do with uh, a, a sense of urgency. Um, and this is especially true around vacant and abandoned houses. So administrations for years had been uh, doing what they could to address vacant and abandoned houses, but there were always more becoming vacant and abandoned than the number that they had cleared or fixed up. And we essentially almost declared a local emergency around it and rerouted as much money as we could find different pots. We got real creative within the boundaries of the law, but real creative with uh, different funding streams. Uh, and then I had to do some work with neighborhoods that didn't really trust us. So a lot of them said, this sounds like gentrification. Now, I'm talking about neighborhoods where some houses are unaffordable, and I think this will be a recognizable problem to you, because their prices are too low to get a loan. Right? You got a 30, this is something that does not compute when I talk to housing policy experts in the Bay Area, um, because we're talking about houses that cost less than they pay for a parking space. But when you got a house, and I assume around here, certainly where I'm from, you can get a pretty good house for 40000 bucks in some neighborhoods. Uh, it's actually really hard to get financing on that. Uh, because a bank may not see its transaction costs come back. And so you have a creditworthy family ready to fix up a house, can't get a loan, and the house is out of reach. So I guess my point is gentrification was not the number one problem in these neighborhoods. Plus land was not scarce. But there was this sense of mistrust, this sense of neglect. And the only way I could find to deal with that was uh, what I would call quantity time. Just hours and hours and hours of listening, community sessions, getting yelled at sometimes. Um, because when you're a symbol of the city, you also represent everything the city's ever done to somebody, good, bad, or indifferent. And so you kind of have to let them beat you up a little bit. Right, Mary? <laughs> um, uh, you absorb that. Uh, and the payoff is when, when the city does something good for people, uh, you, you get to absorb that too. But that quantity time with disadvantaged communities is a huge part of how we've been able to do it. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, welcome, Mayor. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for your service in the military. Appreciate, Appreciate that. that. Um, I work for Cleveland Schools, and uh, we're one of the cities that have mayoral control. Yeah. But we also have something called the Cleveland Plan, where the governor, who's a Republican, and the mayor, who's a Democrat, come together with the business community and whatnot and wrap around schools. And now we just became the fourth city to get Say Yes. So we're really excited about that. But I have a sense, listening to you, that you, you might might have something uh, that you've done with your schools, with your public school system, that you might be able, and I'm a Catholic myself, went to Catholic schools, you might be able to share for our students, just as uh, you, with your youth, you offer a great deal of hope. I'd just like to hear something I can take back to my kids from you. Well, uh, I mean, the biggest message I want students, especially in public schools in, in the Midwest, to hear is, is how much they matter. It's that you matter, and... Uh, it's all going to depend on you. Um, we assembled a youth task force. Uh, we got uh, a couple dozen students every year, uh, high school students from all of our different high schools. It's a great, it's a diverse group. And uh, we pulled them together, and, and I wanted them to really be empowered. So uh, instead of giving them an assignment, I said, why don't you all decide what you want to work on? And then we'll, we'll do it together. And I thought maybe they'd want to work on something, you know, something to make the mayor look good, like... Uh, um, <laughs> create fun things to do in the downtown, you know, after school or something like that. And uh, after a few weeks, we let them noodle on it, came in and said, all right, what do you want to work on? They said, well, we decided uh, violence. We're going to work on violence. <laughs> and I swallowed hard and said, okay, I, I did tell you you could work on whatever. What they wound up doing was they were paying a lot of attention to violence between youth, not just gun violence, but kind of casual violence, to the relationship of violence to social media, and started sponsoring dialogue in basically town halls, uh, going around the different schools, uh, applying tactics that they used to, to defuse those situations. And these students made, made the life of the city better. And the reason I think it's, it's so important is that we always tell kids they're the future, and that's great. People tell me I'm the future. They pat me on the head and they tell me I'm the future of the party, I'm the future of the country. Um, but they're also the present. You know, so much depends on not just what they do someday, but what they do right now. And especially in local government, where you can testify in a piece of legislation, it's not like Congress where you have to actually be invited, right? Usually you can just show up and speak. And I have seen decisions made differently because young people showed up. So I hope young people have a sense of empowerment right now. Um, and, and I hope that your students feel that too. Thank you. Well, thank you. I think you're helping that. You. I'm being told we got 
Uh, one more, so. Uh. Hello, Mr. Mayor. I'm here today speaking as a Republican, which is the only way I can speak because my former party, the Whigs, went out of business many, many years ago, just like Circuit City, if you've heard of them. Um, I think the Democratic Party has a credibility problem when it comes to health care. A well-known person in the Democratic Party famously said some years ago, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. That turned out not to be true. I was not able to keep my doctor. You will save between $1,500 to $2,000 per year. That turned out to be a pipe dream. There were other flaws with the uh, Affordable Care Act, such as it did not guarantee spouse coverage. Companies were allowed to drop coverage for spouses. So some members of your same Democratic Party are now saying, let's go big. Let's have Medicare for all. So my question is threefold. If the Democrats could not do it on a small scale, and they couldn't even do it for the veterans as part of the VA system, why should ordinary people, people here today, from Parma, Berea, Richmond Heights, Cleveland, Mayfield, why should they believe that Medicare for all won't be another disaster? What about those people who have paid into Medicare for all their lives, who are now on Medicare or soon to be in Medicare? Why should they believe that the system won't get worse when a bunch of new people, millions of new people, are added to the system? And finally, my ultimate question is, are you in favor of Medicare for all? Uh, so the answer to the last question is yes. Uh, and thank you, Mr. President, for joining us. Um, Let me share a few things. First of all, uh, again, I was a Democrat running for office in a red state in 2010 right after ACA passed. So I'm very familiar with the politics then. And then something interesting happened because eight years later, um, health care became the winning issue, especially in the Midwest, for voters for the Democratic Party. And one interesting question would be why. I think the difference is that in 2010, the talk was about health, uh, what the ACA might mean, and we were told death panels, the beginning of communism in America, and so forth, as well as you rightly point out about some expectations that were laid out for the ACA that fell short. By 2018, America had had a chance to see how the ACA actually worked, and it turned out America really, really preferred it. Let me tell you what it meant in my family. My mother-in-law showed me something uh, that looks like a tube of toothpaste. Uh, it is actually a kind of uh, topical chemotherapy cream that she uses to treat her skin cancer. Um, they have a mom-and-pop landscaping business uh, and in northern Michigan. Um, wouldn't have health insurance otherwise, but because of the ACA, she's able to purchase insurance. And that little tube, which would cost more than 2000 bucks a month, is something that she can afford, and it is saving her life. Let's talk about Medicare. Um, as somebody mentioned, I lost my father uh, a few weeks ago and um, after an illness um, is a tough thing, obviously. Uh, I make decisions for a living, and nothing could have prepared me for some of the decisions we faced as a family toward the end. But when we made those decisions, the only thing we had to think about was what was medically right for Dad and what was best for the family. Thanks to Medicare, we did not have to think about money. Why shouldn't every American enjoy the same thing? So we can quibble over policy design. We can certainly have some honest and tough conversations about how to pay for it all. But however we come up with this, I think that if residents of pretty much every industrialized country in the world, except ours, enjoy that, I don't see why American citizens should settle for any less. I guess I'm done. They're coming to get the hook. <laughs> Thank you. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, ladies and gentlemen. Great job. Really great job. So ladies and gentlemen, there will now be a book signing. Um, the conversation that you all want to have with Mayor Pete is going to be easier if you have a book in your hand.
Um, so, um, so please uh, feel free to, to buy a copy of the book, and then we'll be calling people over for the book signing um, in their, it, uh, you know, one group at a time. And uh, what? And, and we'll be starting with Group A, I'm told. Wait, this just in, starting with Group A. Um, and for now, though, our forum is adjourned. Thank you so much for being a part of it.